Okay, welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of the Physicians for a National Health Program. And we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley. I'm a volunteer with the group. We're recording today's program, October 21st, and 221,000 folks have died in the U.S. as a result of COVID-19. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. And uh, just a couple uh, news items. Uh, about a month ago, I heard on NPR that the number one cause driving people into poverty, medical bills. That's from a recent U.S. Census uh, data. In 2019 alone, nearly 8 million Americans fell below the poverty line because of medical bills. And... I guess you guys remember our former governor, Matt Bevan, and his Medicaid work requirement program. Well, that went away when uh, Andy Bashir was elected, but it hasn't gone away elsewhere. Not surprisingly, in Georgia, who elected, uh, those folks elected a Republican governor a year or two ago. Well, now they have been approved for their own uh, work requirement uh, waiver with the Medicaid program. Folks 19 to 64 years old, in order to participate in their Medicaid program, beginning in uh, July 2021, they'll have to work 80 hours a month or some other uh, hoop that they jump that they have to jump through. And the effect of this is to install barriers to program participation and cause more folks to lose their health care. Seems like this is the Trump health care program. Also from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, service, u- service use among Medicaid and CHIP beneficiaries age 18 and under during COVID, they compared March to May of 2019 with the same period this year. And the preliminary data says that 22% of kids up to age 20, up to age two are getting fewer vaccinations. 44% of kids are receiving, are not receiving the child screening services. 44% of uh, the kids are not receiving the mental health services and 69% of kids are not receiving dental services. At the other end of the age spectrum, we've got our seniors in long long care facilities. And by mid-September, COVID-19 had killed 77,000 seniors and staff there. That's 40% of the country's total. 
roughly 70% of the nation's 15,400 nursing homes are for-profit. Many state health departments suspended Medicare inspections of these facilities during the pandemic. Plus, dozens of states passed laws this spring granting immunity from legal liability to the entire health industry. You've got profit-driven nursing homes that aren't being in inspected. What could possibly go wrong? As we round the corner, Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shively, any cause for concern? What's up on today's show? Uh, Mark, thank you. Our, our, our Zoom guest today is Dr. Susan Bornstein. Uh, Susan was a practicing gynecologist in Louisville for many years. Uh, a few years ago, she retired from practice, went back to school, and got a master's in public health. And it's my understanding she will spend the future dealing with many of the health care issues that we've discussed uh, on this program on these programs uh, since Mo since March. Uh, good morning, Susan. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, as we've done with other uh, Zoom guests, we'd like to give you an opportunity to have a few minutes to make whatever statements you'd like to make, lay out some issues you want to discuss, or just say whatever you want to say as, a, as an introduction. So uh, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, uh, Mike and Mark and Jean, so much for having me. I, as you mentioned, I was practicing for many years, and I just became increasingly frustrated with the issues that my patients were having with regards to cost and access to care, and that actually motivated me to go back to school to have additional credibility to advocate for them in this space. I felt that while I was practicing, I was advocating for the patients one-on-one, -on -one, but there was such a huge societal need for systemic change that I thought that perhaps I could harness my years of on the boots on the ground experience with some formal education and really help to move the needle towards getting Americans the healthcare that they need and deserve. So thank you for having me today. Well, I think Gene's gonna start shoot the first uh, rocket across the bow here. Okay, uh, but before I ask Susan a question, <laughs> I wanted to point out Mark's uh, introductory remarks about people going bankrupt from medical uh, costs. And yesterday's uh, Courier Journal, there was an article about a young gentleman who had a significant heart problem and works as a cook and makes thirty thousand dollars a year and. He had to go bankrupt because of the excess of cost in medicine. Even though he had insurance, he still could not afford uh, care. And uh, those of you who are listening, you might want to read that in yesterday's uh, Courage Journal. Uh, Susan, we're really glad to have you. I want to point out that my remarks do not represent the Taylor Regional Hospital nor the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. And the first question I want to ask is, how has uh, all this uh, a problem with uh, health care in the United States uh, affected uh, 
your practice previously and then in general how uh, has it affected you and what motivated you to go back and get an MPH? Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it affect, Well, it all kind of ties in together. And b before I go on to answer that question, I, I feel compelled to, to comment a little bit further about what you were talking about with regards to cost, because I think that that is probably the single most important problem with regards to our healthcare delivery system. We actually spend about 18% of our gross domestic product on healthcare, which is almost 50% higher than the next highest developed country of Switzerland at 12%. In 2018, the US spent $3.6 trillion or over $11,000 per person, and it's going to get worse Healthcare costs are estimated to rise to $6 trillion in 2027. I mean, I can't even conceptualize numbers that big. Nobody has household budgets in the, in the trillions and very few people even have household budgets in the billions. The average monthly healthcare cost for a family of four is six, about $1,600, which is the same as more, at the average mortgage payment or rent cost. And if I take a moment of personal privilege to kind of illustrate some of this, I am currently on a COBRA plan from my previous employer, and that costs for my husband and myself about $1,000 a month with an $8,000 deductible. This runs out at the end of February. My husband has a solo dental practice and doesn't qualify for a group plan. He's only got three employees, two of whom have insurance through their, their significant others, and one who had a different job, um, second job that she received insurance through, so she didn't qualify as a group, which means that our only option is to purchase insurance through the exchange. And um, as you've mentioned on the program before, Mr. Bevan dismantled the um, exchange that had been established by Steve Bashir. And so we no longer have the Kentucky program, although Andy, Bush, the current governor, is, is going to reinstate it. It's not going to be available to purchase insurance on until 2022. So we only have options for the federal program, which has some additional surcharges that the state doesn't. There are only two insurers selling individual policies on the exchange, and a silver plan, which is kind of middle of the road, will cost my husband and myself $1,800 a month in premiums alone with a $13,600 deductible and an out-of-pocket maximum of $14,600. So the total exposure for us every year is $36,000. And given that that's more than many people earn in a year. It's just, it's, that's, not a, that's not affordable. And that's what it would cost anybody um, of the ages of my husband and myself to buy insurance on the exchange. Um, something else to think about is the amount of money that goes to pay the overhead of insurance companies. The government's overhead for health insurance is on the order of two to 5%, while that of private carriers is 12 to 18%. One component of this, and I know this is an issue that's near and dear to Mike's heart because he wrote an article about it a number of years ago, which has always remained with me. But of the seven largest national insurers in 2019, 
The most highly compensated CEO was Larry Merlo at CVS, who earned $36.5 million in one year, up from $22 million the year before. So that's about a 50% increase in pay. The lowest earner was Gail Boudreau of Anthem at $15.5 million. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, that's what we have to pay in order to get uh, competitively uh, competent people to be running these companies. But I don't agree that that's a, a valid reason. Healthcare should be about helping and healing others, not yourself. And it's why during COVID, we saw first line responders risking their lives over and over again to take care of those patients, their patients. Those salaries could pay for a lot of prenatal care or antibiotics. So I would say that, that probably one of the, the biggest issues that my patients saw was cost. But another real issue was the, the gains that insurance companies pay, play in terms of giving them the care that they've paid for. So say they don't have an access issue, they're actually able to get into the office, but and they think they're gonna get what they need, but all of a sudden the insurance company doesn't wanna pay for their surgery or doesn't wanna pay for their x-ray or it doesn't wanna pay for their antibiotics. And they wind up with either delayed or denied care. And that is incredibly frustrating for them. And, and really in some cases, life-threatening. It's, it's just not an acceptable way to go. Well, Susan, one of the, uh, one of the first uh, uh, bits of information uh, we got from Gene when he started uh, meeting with us, uh, uh, we used to have these meetings in the downtown library before, before COVID. <clears throat> was that one third of the revenue, the 3.3 or $6 trillion annual revenue that flows through our healthcare system, one third of that is not used for healthcare. It's used for many of the things you've just described. Everything from advertising to political contributions to outrageous, outlandish, uh, CEO compensation. It's not just the CEOs. They're just the top of the food chain. Uh, investor dividends. I mean, it's insane. One third of the revenue. Is that correct, Gene? Yes, yeah, that is. Yeah. And another another quick backdrop here to the um, the, the 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 medical bankruptcy issues. Um, I wrote an article in Louisville Medicine a couple of months ago. I mean, we have in this country, uh, 60, is, as Mark has alluded to, 60% of bankruptcy in this country is related to medical issues. Um, you know, these are the 70, 80 million people who are uninsured or underinsured who get slammed with all of these co-payments, deductibles, uh, co-insurance, de uh, de denial of care, on and on and on and on. Um, uh, I read an article in, uh, that indicated that in France, 2017, there was one, France 2017, one medical-related bankruptcy uh, in this country, we have 200 to 800,000 medical bankruptcies a year, depending upon the year and, and all of these other issues. And on an earlier program, we had talked with uh, 
Ted Young, who was a surgeon up at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And we asked him the same question about medical bankruptcy, and it, it, it just doesn't exist in Canada. Now, they may have bankruptcy as a result of losing a job because of a medical issue, but they're not bankrupt because of the medical bills that they have to pay. So you know, you're absolutely right about, about the cost. Let, let, me, let me ask you a, a kind of a, a, a follow-up question. I was going to ask you about the question that you've already answered, but um, what kind of an understanding do you, did you, would you think that your patients had or would have about how a single payer system, Medicare for all, would affect their health access to health care or the, the health care costs? I mean, how much of an understanding do they have about what we're trying to promote? Well, it's funny. Um, before following the 2016, following the results of the 2016 election, and, and once we learned that the administration um, was going to try really hard to overturn the Affordable Care Act, I literally talked to every one of my patients at every visit about what the Affordable Care Act would mean to them. I didn't as much talk specifically about single payer um, because that really wasn't on the table at that time. It was more about trying to keep from losing what we had rather than, than really overhauling the system and making it better. But because I never heard uh, an actual plan despite their exhortations to the contrary, I never heard um, the current administration come up with an actual plan. But having said that, one of my patients, one of my Medicare patients was extremely opposed to the idea of socialized medicine. Her premise was that you only deserved care if you worked for it. And my efforts to get her to understand the plight of the disabled or the difficulty small businesses and independent contractors had in purchasing insurance failed to convince her. So, um, you know, there's this huge disconnect. Obviously, Medicare is so, a form of socialized medicine. Um, so I would say that some of my patients were very savvy about the challenges and drawbacks to our current healthcare system, especially the controversies surrounding reproductive rights issues. But further down on in general awareness were how the general the, how the current structure directly affected the care that they received. I'm not actually sure that many people outside of the healthcare world spend much time thinking about payment models. They're more focused on day to day needs. I will say, and you didn't ask this, but anecdotally, um, I would say that my colleagues don't have near the opposition to single payer that they did in the past. When I when I talked to them more recently, a lot of people are, are much more on board with that than than they were in the in the olden days. Jane, uh, since we're talking about the ACA, uh, the so-called Obama plan. Uh, what do you think will happen in the state of Kentucky if the Obama plan is uh, repealed? Uh, we have two groups of people who are attacking it, the uh, Trumpet uh, White House and uh, the Congress, uh, particularly in the Senate, the Republican side. And then uh, uh, 
they're counting on the Supreme Court to make it unconstitutional. What do you think will happen uh, to health care in Kentucky and across the United States if the uh, ACA is repealed? Well, my short answer to that is it would be a disaster. Let's start with pre-existing conditions. It's estimated that 61 to 133 million people or a third of Americans have pre-existing conditions. The Affordable Care Act eliminated the ability of insurers to discriminate on the basis of pre-existing conditions, meaning that they can neither deny nor charge more for individuals who have medical problems. A GAO report indicated that as of early 2010, prior to the implementation of the ACA, nearly 20% or a fifth of applicants for insurance on the individual market were denied. That means no insurance. No insurance means that you pay rack rate for any healthcare services, which are astronomical. I was looking up, it, it said that the average three-day hospital stay was $30,000. And I actually tried to look up the average cost of a physician visit without insurance. And you can't even find it because they're so busy talking about what it is with insurance discounts, but it looks to be on the order of at least several hundred dollars. And, you know, people can't pay that. So no insurance means no care. It also means between, it means choosing between medical care and food, bankruptcy, severe illness and death. The, um, from an OBGYN standpoint, the AC, there had had some really important, has some really important protections that would be lost. It guarantees coverage for any FDA approved contraceptives. And this has been somewhat contentious. While there were exemptions in place already for religious organizations, the coverage guarantee has already been undermined by an executive order from Mr. Trump that essentially allows any employer to provide, to refuse to provide contraception if they don't want to. The ACA also has several other really important regulations. It requires all employers to offer insurance to their employees to cover well woman care without co-pays. It requires maternity coverage, which in the past would re frequently require a separate rider. It allows children to be covered under their parents' policies until age 26 and limits what older patients can be charged in premiums relative to younger patients. Another key component of the ACA is ensuring mental health coverage by small employers and those on individual policies is equal to that of medical and surgical coverage, otherwise known as mental health parity. About 20% of US adults or nearly 50 million people live with mental illness and all of these benefits could and most likely would be lost if the ACA is overturned. So, I mean, I just, I can't think of anything positive at all that would come out of it other than the policies would get cheaper because they wouldn't have to cover the required benefits, but then you're paying for insurance and then you go to use it and it doesn't cover the things that you need. So that just seems to be a lose-lose situation. Well, that's the way the insurance companies, uh, the insurance companies want it. Uh, let, let me switch horses a little bit here and ask you to put on your predicting the future hat. And let's say, just for the sake of discussion, suppose Biden wins the election and the Democrats take back the Senate. 
what happens next? Will will the, the first day that the doors open, we have uh, 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 some uh, you know proposals to establish Medicare for all, or something else? What what do you think is going to happen? Well, I've got some ideas. I know Gene's got some ideas. Uh, the people who we 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 work with in 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 this Kentuckians for single payer are, are true believers, and I know what they think is going to happen. So, as a as a just what we'll tell us what you think the likelihood of whatever will happen will be. I am a terrible tea leaf, two things. One, I'm a terrible tea leaf reader. And the other thing is I almost can't go there because it's so much to hope for. And I'll be so devastated if that doesn't happen. You know, nobody <laughs> thought that. <laughs> the suicide rate may go up. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's already the highest in the world. So that wouldn't be good. Um so, so I guess I would say that, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Biden won the primary on the uh, mantra that he wasn't in favor of single payer health care, that he wasn't in favor of universal access. And while Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have pushed that debate to the point where we're talking about it more than we ever have in the past. And while I firmly believe that people will love it once it's in place, um, getting there is incredibly difficult. And they would have to, they would be viewed as sellouts by a lot of the people who opposed it. So a lot of the, the moderate Democrats that opposed it. So um, I'm not sure what kind of Faustian bargain they might have to strike in order to make that happen. I certainly hope that it happens. I hope that I can help make that happen because I really think that universal health care is the only solution to addressing the iniquities in this country. But I'm not sure that at the moment I see a path through. One thing to think about is that if the ACA is overturned by the Supreme Court in November, it may produce enough chaos that that would become a more palatable solution than um, all of these incremental improvements that we keep talking about that really don't address a large number of the inequities and costs and access problems that we currently have. I'd, I'd be interested to know what, what you guys think is going to happen. Well, I'm going to I'm going to tell you my prediction and I'll let Gene see what. Uh, I agree with you. I, I think that, uh, I mean, clearly uh, a single payer Medicare for all is the best long term solution. I don't see any pathway of that happening in the short term simply because of the the issues related to the political process, the, you know, the Bob Deweese making sausage issue. Uh, my my best guess would be if those events occur and and the the Senate is 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 democratic and the White House is, I think the most likely 
uh, uh, change initially would be a public option. I'm not exactly sure what that would look like, because that would be the result, again, of this, quote, political process, unquote. And um, uh, I took Japan a decade, Japan, which has a universal health care system, to go from this sort of insurance uh, company dominated system to the current system that they've got today. Uh, Gene, what's your thought about that? I think uh, if the Democrats win the Senate and the White House, that a public option will probably be what ha- what's happen- going to happen. I think they will extend uh, Medicare uh, from uh, age 65 down to age 60. They will try to include everyone with pre-existing condition and try to include everyone uh, in the United States to have some type of uh, insurance. I think the problem with the public option is that the uh, for-profit insurance companies will try to take advantage of that. They're already doing it with uh, advertising heavily for advantage plans and that they will probably try to get into uh, administrating uh, uh, Medicaid and that they will eventually uh, make a lot of money and that we can gradually go to a uh, system where maybe the insurance companies will be included, but their profit margin uh, will be decreased. And that's even more uh, an important reason why people like you and Jane and I spend our time doing these things with the hope that somebody out there is listening and, and, and at least getting a better, a better understanding of, 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 of these issues. Let me uh, just inject, uh, Gene, your question, what would happen if the ACA goes away without a replacement? In addition to the uh, uh, commun- patients getting hammered, communities are going to get hammered when people with insurance now under ACA show up for treatment, there's some payment for that. When ACA goes away, they're gonna show up without any kind of uh, payment. And so you think rural hospitals and others are on a tight budget now? What happens when we have all these people showing up that are uninsured? Well, I think the rural hospitals are already stressed. In Kentucky, they estimate there are 28 uh, rural hospitals that are in trouble. But not only that, I think uh, uh, safety net hospitals uh, will be in trouble. Uh, We've already had uh, a hospital in Philadelphia uh, close. They're talking about three hospitals uh, in Chicago. There are safety net hospitals that are in trouble who will absorb those patients. In Kentucky, uh, the University of Louisville and University of Kentucky, which uh, are providing excellent care and are safety net hospitals, but you can only stretch that so far. And uh, University of Louisville has really helped us in acquiring Jewish and St. Mary and Elizabeth, Our Lady of Peace Hospital, but if we lose any more income, how far will they be able to go without any uh, tax revenue or some type of revenue to help them uh, support these patients? Uh, 
Uh, one of the other questions I have about the ACA is why is it unconstitutional? Let's put our, um, uh, our hats on and pretend we're lawyers. And I've looked at this a little bit and why do, uh, do so many people feel that the ACA is unconstitutional? I, uh, I myself have personally not been able to figure that out. Susan, do you have any idea? Well, my first impression is that Republicans in general don't like anything that isn't based on free market principles, unless, of course, it benefits them directly. And I just want to take a moment to say how sad it is that healthcare has become partisan, especially when I think back to my parents' generation and, and, and the medical community when I, when I first started in practice, most physicians and their families were Republicans. And now it seems like Republicans have become the anti-healthcare party and, and it, just shouldn't, it just shouldn't be that way. Um, but anyhow, that's just a side comment. The other idea is that maybe they're just being originalist since making sure that everyone had health insurance wasn't written into the Constitution in 1776. We seem to be stuck on this idea that if it wasn't originally written down that um, you can't have it and that's, that's kind of crazy. I don't want to receive the medical care that was available in 1776. So I don't, I don't see why our... <laughs> ideas about how to do things should be the same as they were in 1776. Well, if you could, if you could, if you have the right to carry around your single shot musket, uh, uh, as you did in 1776, well, you should be able to have about 16 AR-15s that can wipe out 35 people in, in, in 30 seconds. Uh, there's a lot of nutty stuff, a lot of nutty stuff out there. There are, there are, at least 30 other first world countries. You know, when you listen to some of these people, I'm just listening again, listening to this guy running against Mark Warner in, 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 in Virginia as I was going through the, the traffic. And, and, you know, they all sound like, do you remember Enron? Enron, yes. these were the, the smartest guys in the room, and they were screwing around with the, with the power in Southern California, cutting things off, and one guy's dead, the other one's in jail, which is where they belong, and he got a, he got a blueberry pie thrown in his face at some meeting, I remember, way back when. Well, didn't they steal the retirement funds from their, from their employees? Well, they did a bunch of things, yeah. That was just, that was just part of it. I mean, that's, they were the smartest guys in the room. Well, we are not the smartest guys in the room because there are all every other country, first world country, all 30 of them, France, England, Ireland, Israel, Japan, Taiwan, countries very much like us, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. They all have figured out a way, a little bit different uh, similarities, no perfect system of of covering healthcare for all of their citizens in some way or another. Many of them provide or allow some form of for-profit healthcare and some don't. Um, they regulate drugs better than we do. Uh, our healthcare, we don't have a system. What we have is a, a patchwork of activities that are vulnerable to the uh, 
for-profit predators. And, you know, for example, you talked about the, the safety net. Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia was acquired by a hedge fund operator who wanted to turn it into an apartment building. I mean, this is a kind of stuff. I'm not going to use the word, Mark. I'm Mark's over there looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> that we're living with. <laughs> so... Uh, again, that's why it's so important to have somebody like you who happens to transition from being a, a practitioner to, to being an activist. I, I, I think that's really important. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, one of the things that comes to mind that we may be able to do is a, a system like this in Germany. It's not really a socialized system. Everyone uh, chooses their health insurance but everyone is covered uh, by uh, federal law, and yet they seem to be able to take care of patients with pre-existing conditions, and it seems to work fairly well. Susan, what do you think of the German system? I think it looks pretty good. I mean, I think that there are a lot of systems that we can look at for guidance, all of which do a better a better job than we do, um, just to provide a little bit more information. In Germany, they use what are called sickness funds, which are financed by a combination of general wage contributions and payroll taxes, to which the employer and the employee both contribute equally um, at 14%. 14.6% of their wages, and then an additional supplementary contribution of 1% um, for the employees themselves. And this, they get coverage for inpatient, outpatient, mental health services, prescriptions, um, and their co-payments for, for inpatient care were like $12 a day. Uh, if you earn more than 68,000, you can actually buy your own private health insurance and you can also get secondary insurance for stuff that does cover your copay or benefits that aren't the, the few benefits that aren't covered. But you have access to the same providers. One of the problems that we have in this country is your access is tied in many ways to what kind of insurance that you have. Well, not in many ways. It's absolutely tied. So, um. For example, in Medicare, for Medicare, Medicare pays GYN services so poorly that a lot of times gynecologists won't participate. All insurers pay mental health professionals really poorly. So in many communities, probably the majority of uh, psychiatrists don't participate with any insurance companies at all. We had a big war um, back when I started practice between Humana and non-Humana hospitals. You guys probably remember that. And Humana had its own insurance company. And so they made a rule that people that had Humana insurance could only go to Humana hospitals. And so then the blues retaliated by saying, if you had Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance, you could only go to non-Humana hospitals. And so the doctors that you can see um, become restricted by what kind of insurance you have. And then if you have no insurance, that certainly restricts your access to care pretty much to uh, emergency room uh, use only, which is an even higher and poor, poorer long-term way of getting care because there's no continuity of care. So um, in the German government, they develop the policies and the regulations, but they're not involved in direct care. And there is some, you know, a lot of the objection that I hear 
to single payer, at least on the provider side is, well, we, we can't survive on just what Medicare pays us and the private carriers give us more, which allows us to make more of a profit. If we take only Medicare, we're not gonna earn any money. And one of the things that's kind of nice about the German system from that standpoint is that the providers can actually negotiate with these regional, or at least the ambulatory care physicians can negotiate with the regional associations for reimbursement. So it, it may work out a little bit better in the long run. So Germany covers all of their patients, as you were just saying, they only spend 11.5% of GDP. We cover, uh, we spend 18% and we have 30 million uninsured and a lot more underinsured. So, so they're doing a far better rate, better, better job than we are. Uh, Mark, do you want to make some of your midterm comments here? Yeah, let me just say that you're listening to Single Payer Radio here on WFMP-LP with Dr. Mike Flynn, Dr. Gene Shively, and our guest, Dr. Susan Bornstein. Uh, Susan, on an earlier program, we talked with Ted Young, who was a surgeon. Um, he and I were both in the leadership of Society of Head and Neck Surgeons way, way, way back when, when we both had color in our hair. And um, one of the one of these issues we talked with him about was, you know, how um, how well the physicians were doing and, and uh, some of the some of the uh, practical issues of being in practice and making a decent living in in the system, the Canadian system. And uh, I mean, it went through a series of changes. Apparently, at one point, um, the maximum you could make getting um, a full payment was $400,000 a year. That's not a bad salary. Now, obviously, if you're having to pay staff and other things like that, it, it really eats into it. But he was in an academic institution, and uh, I was as well. And and they they would take hunks of money out for this that and the other thing, uh, and and then if you made the next uh, fifty years, I don't remember exact number. Uh, after four hundred thousand dollars a year, you got paid seventy five percent of the normal payment, and then if you went on and made another hundred thousand dollars after that, you were down to 50%. So the more money you made above $400,000, you got paid less for what you did. They negotiated their way out of that, and uh, they seem to have, a, have worked out a system, again, over a period of time by making adjustments and compromising and negotiating and again, I mentioned earlier, and Japan went through a similar process over over a decade of adjusting, changing, and 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 making the system eventually, which it seems to eventually work out well, well for uh, you know for everyone. So you know, it, it, it's a process. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see any single. Uh, step like the National Health Service in Britain happening anytime soon in this country simply because of the political situation that we that we live in. Uh, Gene? Well, looking at it from a provider standpoint, um, you, we, 
Susan, do you want to mention any of the problems that providers have? For example, if um, if you decided to go back into practice uh, next year, uh, what would be some of the overwhelming uh, costs that you would confront? And actually, uh, would it be possible to do if you went into private practice? Um, it's kind of an, an overwhelming thought. Um, the, the first thing I would say in the spirit of total transparency is that in my early years, I, I opposed single payer. I was young and inexperienced in the business side of medicine, and they didn't really teach us anything about medical economics in medical school. And they taught you how to take care of patients. They didn't teach you how to run a business. Um, and I needed to recoup my, my practice startup expenses. And that um, is an obstacle to to um, having physicians, I'm sort of answering multiple questions, but one of the things that's an obstacle is the incredibly high debts that people come out of, of medical school with, which are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So in a lot of these countries where they uh, pay physicians lower amounts compared to in the United States, they have much greater subsidies for medical school education. So I think that that's something that we, we need to keep in, in, in the front of our minds. And also the fact that they have much better ratios of primary cares to specialists, which we don't have in this country and which is a huge problem. Um, but in terms of, of being able to go back into practice, well, actually, I, I don't even see that as a remote possibility. I was in solo private practice for years, which I loved. Um, my patients really liked, and it was actually rising overhead costs and inability to negotiate with any of my insurers that made that an economically unfeasible model. You know, I couldn't call up Humana and say, um, by the way, can you increase my reimbursement because my rent's going up? I mean, they just laughed at me. And if I ever said the fee schedule was too low, they said, oh, that's nice. Take it or leave it. If you don't want to participate with us, um, we can just get somebody else. So, so certainly that was a huge aspect of it. And then the other real problem is the increasing uh, rules and regulations and documentation um, for things like OSHA and practice manuals and and all of these kinds of things, and also unfunded mandates and the need to have an electronic medical record, which costs hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and for which there's no reimbursement, it just makes it, I mean, it just makes it impossible. It's, it's, it's not an economically uh, sound model to be able to hang out your shingle and practice independently anymore. In Louisville, I only know of one OBGYN group that is not hospital affiliated. It's it's just you can't do it. Well, Susan, I, as you know, so many of the uh, practicing physicians in Louisville uh, who were in independent practices are no longer in independent practices. They work for hospital systems so that they get a paycheck from the hospital system. Once you get a paycheck from wherever you get a paycheck from, as opposed to earning it on your own in, a, in an individual practice, um, the influence that they have over you changes. And uh, uh, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of issues go on in some of the 
medical practices where um, uh, physicians are, uh, quote, encouraged, unquote, to see X number of patients in Y period of time. So that, and as we both know, if somebody walks in, you walk in the room and the patient is sitting there, if it, it may be a quickie in and out because it's just a quick follow-up visit or you might get in there and find out you're sitting there for a half an hour or 45 minutes listening to a whole bunch of things you didn't expect. Um, the, other, the other kind of side effect of all this that I experienced a lot uh, because uh, in my surgical practice was very narrow and very limited and dependent upon referral sources. And uh, as different uh, hospital systems coalesced, uh, the referral uh, patterns would change. And I remember seeing, uh, 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 having, there was one situation where patients were coming in for a, a condition that I treated called hyperparathyroidism. And all of a sudden, one of the referral sources just didn't seem to, be referring patients. And then a couple of months later, I started seeing a bunch of patients whose um, surgical treatment wasn't done very well from that referral source. And then the referral source came back. And, and, and this was, this was the, the, the administration of, of um, uh, not so much regulation, but suggestion that, 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 that referrals remain within the system. And uh, a lot of a lot of negative issues surrounding that. Uh, I don't know if some of the things we're talking about would change that because most of the things we're discussing with the single payer Medicare for all and some of all the other awful systems that are going on in medical health care and health care in this country, uh, you know, have to do with practice patterns and and administrative structures um, and the single payer issue is simply a matter of where the money comes from. Well, one of the things, just while you're talking about that, and I'll let you ask your question, but um, I just want to get it out there because I think it's so important is that one of the biggest drawbacks to the current system is that while there was a, there's a requirement for Medicare to have electronic medical records or you get a penalty in terms of reimbursement. There was no incentive or facilitation to make sure that all of these different electronic medical record systems can talk to one another. So there's a huge amount of not just duplication of care, but um, and, and, and wasted money because you don't know that somebody, for example, just had a blood count done by a different doctor three weeks ago and the patient doesn't remember and you can't see into their system. And, it w and, and that's, just, uh, th that's just talking about money. It can also have serious health consequences when uh, if you're a physician at Norton's, you can't see into the medical record um, from the patient's oncologist at, at uh, the University of Louisville system. Those, those systems don't uh, fluidly talk to one another. There is some um, uh, back and forth between two of the systems, but not with the third system. And so we really need to have an integrated national uh, electronic medical record system uh, both from a time and a quality of care standpoint and cost uh, standpoint. 
Yep, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, when the, when the uh, electronic health systems were initiated in Louisville some years ago, Louisville was Babel. The VA had one system, Norton had one system, the university had one system, and the Jewish hospital, Kentucky One, had one system. It was, it, you're right, it was, it was insane. Now, there, there's a reason behind that. Uh, and the reason that all of, all of these administrative things have changed from, uh, no, no. <laughs> Mark has given me the five minute warning. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna say this very quickly. The reason it's changed is between 1975 and the mid uh, 2000s, the number of, of bean counters, bureaucrats, administrators, managers, whatever you wanna call them, has increased by 3,000%, 3,000%. There are 10 of them to every practicing physician. Just think about that. I mean, this is, this is, this is one of those situations where <laughs> the system has been taken over by the bean counters. And the, the business of the electronic health record is 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 uh, a, a perfect example of that gene we're getting close to the end you want to say something and then we'll let susan make a couple of final comments and then mark does his final yeah. shtick and we're going to be over here the electronic medical records has cost physicians huge amount of times it's not unusual for a physician to spend three or four hours extra at night uh, on the medical records trying to straighten yeah. them out and uh uh, getting everything filled out. And the reason they're spending so much time, if they don't do it cr uh, correctly, the insurance company won't pay them. Uh, so it's a huge waste of time. Uh, I, I know some hospitals uh, where uh, the uh, inpatient and outpatient uh, electronic medical records is different and they don't talk to each other. So if you got a patient in your office and you admit them, uh, you have to... Uh, uh, scan the record from the outpatient to the inpatient. It becomes very confusing, and there's often incorrect uh, records and templates on systems that can be very confusing. So, Susan, we're getting close to the end of the lollipop here. I want to thank you. You're a great guest. We'll probably have you back again if you're if you haven't moved on to some sort of uh, activist position in Washington or something like that. You want to make a, a final <laughs> final statement before we turn this over to Mark for his final shtick. Well, I think that this was probably naive of me, but I was worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about and that we would run out of questions or topics before the hour was up. But there's actually still a lot that we didn't get to. Um, I wanted to, to talk some about social determinants of health and also problems with access and uh, equality in healthcare and healthcare disparities. So I would love to come back and maybe talk about some of those things one day. So send, send me a bunch of those questions and we'll set it up probably sometime next year. Well, we still got two minutes. What? Two oh, two. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Susan, anything else you want to say? <laughs> 
Um, well, I know that you talked with, with Wayne about this, but I, I think that it's just such an important moment in time to talk about the racial inequalities of healthcare. And I really hope that now that that the genie's out of the barrel in terms of, of starting to talk about these kinds of things, that we really make some strides to improve healthcare across uh, racial, ethnic, and, and gender um, disparities. When women are discriminated against in, against in healthcare, uh, African-American Blacks and other uh, racial minorities are discriminated against. And there's the whole problem of LGBTQ discrimination. And these, we're all humans and we all deserve uh, equal and appropriate and high quality healthcare. And, and I just want to help move the needle to, to making that happen. It's, it's past time for that to happen. Did you get a chance to listen to our program with Wayne? I did. It was great. Yeah. yeah I thought it was, we had a very, a very frank and open discussion about a lot of those healthcare issues uh, and about racism. So that, that was, that was good. And again, thank you again. You're a great guest. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, Guys, everybody, thank you. Uh, Dr. Bornstein, you can encourage your colleagues and friends to go to forwardradio.org and they can listen to single payer radio as well. The views and opinions expressed here on single payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. Uh, if you'd like to get involved with Kentuckians for single payer healthcare, you can go to the website kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org, and you can follow the group on Facebook. Uh, to support Forward Radio, you can go to forwardradio.org. There's a donate button, and if you'd like to become involved with the station, there's a participate button as well. You can listen to Single Payer Radio three times a week, we are broadcasting Monday at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick us up on your radio during those times, you can stream us live. So thanks again, everyone. Thank you.